We're going to look at the Word of God now. Um, so if you, uh, if you have your Bibles, we can look at Mark 11. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. It's also printed in your bulletin. As I get older, I've tried to evade certain things that happen to people when they get older. And one of them is wearing glasses. And so I have tried my best to evade this uh, need in my life. And one of the ways that I do that is that I squint a lot at things. My kids call it my deedy eyes because they think that's the sound that I'm making when I'm staring. So as I squint at people the other day, I think I was at Wegmans. I think that's where I was. And I was, I was looking at somebody. I was like, I think I know who that is. And then I didn't know who that was, and, but they were doing it back to me. And they were doing their DDIs. I was doing my DDIs. The entry of Jesus into Jerusalem is kind of a DDI moment, if you will, for the people. They thought they knew who they were looking at. They were kind of squinting, and they thought they had a vision of, of who was before them, but their vision was blurry because they were looking for a Jesus to be someone that he never came to be. They wanted an earthly king, one who would bring an earthly kingdom, one that would be marked with military defeat and a restoration of their rights. Finally, it would be their turn to put their, net, their foot on the neck of their oppressor. But that was not the kingdom that Jesus came to bring, was it? He came to bring an upside-down kingdom, one that many times to us is very blurry. Perhaps even after this past week, the events of this past week, on a national level or even just in your family, the kingdom of God and Jesus himself is very blurry. Perhaps Jesus looks more like the cover of the bulletin. The reason why we designed it the way we did is because Jesus is blurry. It's not because we didn't pay for the printing. Because many times this is what Jesus looks like to us. Palm Sunday is a day where Jesus comes to us again and he says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Palm Sunday is another day where Jesus says, look again, and I will become clearer and in focus to you. So we're going to read this passage, and then we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit will help us look and see at how this blurry king comes into focus. Mark 11, starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany... At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which one no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt 
to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Lord God, we need you to clear our blurry eyes this morning. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would show us through the word. You would not just inform us through this passage, but you will transform us through your word. And that we will see Jesus clearer as we leave this place than when we came in. Jesus, thanks for loving us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. There's three things that will help us as we look at this blurry king come into focus. The first is this. This king is in control. The second is this king is intentional. And third is this king is present. The background of this passage is that Jesus has been doing miracles and healings, and one of the last healings he had done is he raised somebody from the dead. He raised Lazarus. And that's, cur- and that's caused quite a stir in the region. And so many people were anxious to see this Jesus and what he was about. And so as he enters into the last phase of his life, he goes to Jerusalem and he goes near Bethphage. Bethphage means house of unripe figs. And then he goes to Bethany, which means the house of figs. Both of these towns were on the Mount of Olives on the way to Jerusalem. It was on this Mount of Olives that Jesus gives the disciples some directions. And these directions start to kind of bring this blurry king into focus. Because his directions show that this king is in charge. Verses 1 through 7 were these directions that Jesus gives. He tells them to go into the town that's ahead of them. And in that town, they're going to find a colt, a donkey, and for them to untie it and to bring it to him. Now, there might have been some planning. Jesus maybe uh, had talked with the owner of this colt beforehand. We're not too sure. But this is what we do know, that when Jesus gives these directions, he is showing he is in control. He is in charge. And the directions that he gives to his disciples reveals something about his character, about who he is, who this king is. It first shows that Christ is humble. Now we know this from other parts of the Bible, that Christ is so humble. He is so compassionate. He is so kind. He is so caring. Tim Keller says this, though, Christ is humble, but he's not modest. He tells his disciples to go and get that colt and untie it and to bring it to him. And if anybody asks them, what are you doing? They are to say, the Lord is in need of this. When he uses that phrase, the Lord, the word Lord was used very commonly in that time. Curio could have meant master. It could mean sir. 
But when it has an article in front of it, the Lord, he is literally calling himself God. Jesus is humble, but he's not modest. He makes bombastic claims all the time about who he is and what he is here to do. In 2021, there was this um, research project done by Lifeway Research, and it was called State of Theology. And basically, they polled and surveyed a bunch of Americans and kind of asked general questions about the Bible and about God and about Jesus, etc., etc. 59% of Americans believe that Jesus was the first creation of God. 59% of Americans believe that Jesus was the first creation of God, that he was created by God. I want you to hear it straight from Jesus. Jesus calls himself God. He does not say that he was created. Jesus knows that he is God in human form. Jesus is humble, but Jesus is not modest. He is in charge, and he says bombastic things because he knows that he is in charge. He gives these directions to his disciples, and his disciples, what do they do? They exhibit faith and obedience, and they scurry off to get this cult. They recognize the lordship of Jesus in their life. Now we see later on that the disciples leave Jesus in his time of need. But here we have a wonderful illustration, example, if you will, of what it looks like when Jesus is Lord of your life. When Jesus is Lord of your life, it means he wants all of your life. Another bombastic thing that Jesus says. He says, I want to have all of your life or I want none of your life. Jesus doesn't want to be number one in your life. He wants to be number one, two, three, four, five. He wants your whole life. In fact, in Matthew 6, 34, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You either serve this world or you serve me. Bob Dylan said it this way, you're going to have to serve somebody. And Jesus says, I didn't come to be liked. He says, kill me or crown me. Don't like me. There is no indifference to Jesus. If you are going to say that you are a Christian and that Jesus is Lord of your life, then he is going to command you to untie things in your life and to bring them to him. That might be your vocational pride. It might be your reputation. It might be your desire for comfort. It might be actually your children. It might be that you have to embrace your singleness, or it means you actually have to sacrifice for your spouse. Whatever it is, Jesus is asking you to untie and bring to him. He expects obedience. Jesus is humble Jesus is not modest. He says bombastic things because Jesus is in total control. And when we obey the king, 
Look what happens here in the passage. They obey him. They bring him the colt, and he uses it to usher in his kingdom. He uses our obedience to bring about the kingdom of God. And when we obey this king, when we have Jesus as Lord of our life and we obey him, he brings our lives and the lives around us into the kingdom because this king is intentional. That's my second point that we see here. This blurry king comes into focus when we see how intentional he is. He asks for a donkey. There's something very important about this foal or cult of a donkey. The first time we ever hear about a foal is in Genesis 49. It's a part of a blessing. Jacob, who is kind of the ancient father of the Israelites, blesses one of his sons, his son Judah. And the way he blesses him is he says, there's going to be a colt that someone's going to ride into a city and bring with it restoration, a kingdom where he says there is wine, where there is blood of grapes. It's a weird kind of blessing. But what he's talking about is a restoration of all the good things in life, and it will be brought about by one riding on a donkey. We then see this kind of this theme carry through with David and Solomon, who also ride donkeys at different points in their reign and career as kings. And then, just like we just read in Zechariah 9, there is this donkey that's going to be ridden upon by one who is going to bring restoration. The donkey was a sign or a symbol. When the people saw that donkey, they knew what it meant. If I hold up a picture right now of like a swoosh, you would know what that is, right? It's Nike. Or if I, if I uh, held up a picture of, a, of an apple with like a chunk written out of it, like eaten out of it, you would know what that is, right? That's Macintosh. That's the apple, right? It's a sign. It's a symbol that you know what it means. When they saw that donkey, it meant the Messiah was here. When the people saw that donkey, they knew that they were going to be delivered from their oppressors. That is why they put their cloaks on the ground, because it was something for royalty. That's why they cut those branches and throw it out, because that was a sign of victory. But there's some confusion here. The conquering king would ride a donkey, not a king going into battle. And this Messiah, this Jesus that they believed was coming in to wage war against the Romans, it's a bad military tactic to ride a donkey. Donkeys are little. They're not very fast. They're kind of dumb. You want to ride a big horse. So there's some confusion here. Again, the people are seeing Jesus in this blurry, with their blurry eyes, a king about to go into battle would not ride a donkey. A servant rides a donkey. This blurry king rides a donkey like a servant to show that he is bringing something very different. A kingdom not built on military power or might. A kingdom not brought about by the sword. A kingdom that isn't him pouring out wrath on the Romans, but a kingdom built on serving and sacrificing and taking the wrath in order to bring peace, a kingdom that's marked by humility and peace and freedom from our great oppressor, death. And this is where the gospel is seen. 
in the donkey. One pastor calls it donkeyology, which I thought was kind of cute. That's a cute phrase, right? The theology of the donkey is where we see the gospel. Because the king of the universe, God himself, Jesus Christ, becomes a servant. For who? For the servants who want to be king. The gospel is this great upside-down move where the creator becomes the created in order to save his creation. And the whole time, his creation wants to be God. We desperately want authority, don't we? We want to be the authority. We want to call the shots. We don't want to serve. We want to be served. The reason Jesus is blurry to us is because we always want to be king of our life. We don't ever want to be the servant. We have misplaced worth. We have such a high view of ourselves. We have such a high view of humanity. And we have a tendency of always putting ourselves at the center of the story. Jesus knows this. And so the king becomes the servant for us. There's something very complicated here, though, too. The people are crying out for deliverance because they were in captivity. They were oppressed by the Romans. They were enslaved by the Romans, by their brokenness and by their need. But they were crying out for the wrong thing. They were crying out, Hosanna, deliver us, save us. And their cry is genuine. But what they want to be saved from is from the Romans. And Jesus says, I didn't come to topple the Roman Empire. In John 18, 36, Jesus says this, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. I think many times we fall into the same ditch. We stumble into the same ditch because our eyes are blurry. We cry to God out of our need and our suffering with a genuine cry, but we're crying for the wrong thing. We wonder where God is because for some reason I'm not experiencing the comfort that I think I deserve. We are seeing with blurry eyes what Christ is bringing. And what he is doing in our life is he's bringing the kingdom in our life. One where now we cannot be king because he must be king. But when he is king of your life, he makes sense of your suffering. He brings purpose to your pain. He brings peace that is surpassing. I think in the coming 18 months, there's going to be a lot of talk about kingdoms. God's kingdom versus our kingdom. With a political and cultural landscape that is continually shifting and becoming continually selfish and angry, I think it's important for us as the church to keep in mind the kingdom that this blurry king brings. A kingdom marked by peace, humility, compassion. But most of all, a kingdom that is marked by Christ's presence. 
And that's my last point. This king, this blurry king, is present. He's here. The end of this passage seems somewhat anticlimactic, doesn't it? Let me read it to you just just one more time. Verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Kind of seems like, what? That just seems like a very anticlimactic end to this triumphal entry. But my friends, don't miss it, because here is the main theme of this passage and the main theme of Jesus' life. In the book of Mark, the trajectory of Jesus seems to be like moving toward Jerusalem. And certainly, he is heading to Jerusalem, but there's something in Jerusalem that he is interested in going to and seeing, and that is the temple. Where Jesus is heading is the temple, and that is significant because thousands of years earlier, a man by the name of Ezekiel had a vision, and this vision was horrifying. Ezekiel was a prophet, and he was told by God to tell the Israelites that God had had enough, and that God was going to leave his people, that he was going to take his presence away from his people. And so this vision that he gives to Ezekiel is that God's presence is in the tabernacle, in the temple, and it leaves, and it goes to the east side of Jerusalem, And from there, it ends up going to the East Mountain that overlooks Jerusalem. Whenever whenever in the Bible something's moving from west to east, it means exile. Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden, and they were east of Eden. Maybe some of you have read that Steinbeck book. They went east because east was exile. God exiles himself in this vision. And he ends up on this mountain to the east of Jerusalem. The greatest story arc in the Bible is God's presence with his people. He loves his people. He loves being with his people. God is here. The God of the universe is here right now with us. He loves being with his people Because in his presence there is peace and rest and joy and love. And this vision is so sad and horrifying because God is saying, I'm leaving my people. And when he leaves his people, it means now his people are completely exposed and vulnerable. And for the Israelites, it took a few years and they were already in captivity by the Babylonians. And from there they spent millennia enslaved, entrapped captives. Perhaps that's you this morning. Perhaps you feel like the presence of God is gone in your life. Perhaps that is because you have decided that you want to be king, you want to call the shots, and you want to do whatever you want to do. And that has only led you to pain and sadness and loneliness. Perhaps this morning you call yourself a Christian, but you have no peace in your life. You are anxious and fearful and controlling and angry, and generally you are miserable. Perhaps this morning 
Jesus is just blurry to you. You are wondering where he is. And he's more like a smudge in your life, unrecognizable. Perhaps especially when you look at this world and the events of this last week, you are wondering where God is. My friends, I have good news for you. Palm Sunday tells us exactly where God is. He is with you in Christ Jesus. The mountain that God rests on in the vision from Ezekiel is the Mount of Olives. The very mountain where Jesus is as he gives his directions to get this donkey and then he rides down that hill all the way back into Jerusalem to say, I'm back. And then he goes to the temple, the very place where God's presence resides. And you can almost see the glint in his eye as he looks around and as he says, oh, I am back. In John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, the word was with God from the very beginning of time. And then in John 1.14, it says, the word became flesh. That's Jesus. And do you remember what John 1.14 says after that? The word became flesh and it did something. It tabernacled with us. It dwelt with us. This triumphal entry is Jesus Christ bringing the presence of God back to his people. My friends, Jesus is unapologetic in who he is and what he's come to do. And the rest of this week, as you read the story of this Holy Week, he is clearing out the way so that you can see who he is and what he has done for us. That he came to not give wrath, but to take wrath. He did not come to condemn, but be condemned. Jesus came not to live in the flesh, but to live in your hearts. And in order to do that, he had to die the death that we deserved. The rest of this week is all about a blurry king coming more and more into focus as he says to you and he says to me, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So my friends, how do you respond to this? Will you submit to this king? Perhaps this, mor perhaps this morning you need to do some business with the king before you come to his table. Maybe you need to ask him for forgiveness because he's not Lord of your life. Perhaps this morning you just need to be reminded that Jesus is with you. His presence is with you. Then come to this table and eat. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for seeing our deep need. Our deep need of always wanting to be in control. Our deep need that would lead, that would lead us to hell and eternal separation from you, if not for you, coming to us, riding in on that donkey, in all humility, 
going to the cross and paying the price that we could not pay, that we would not pay. So, Jesus, this Palm Sunday, remind us again that you are the king who is in control. You are the king who is intentional with us, and you are the king whose presence is here in our midst. Feed our faith now. Amen.